Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University presents a lecture by Frank Salmon entitled Carrying Off the Colosseum, British Architectural Encounters with Rome in the 1770s. This is the first of two lectures delivered in conjunction with the Frankie Seminar, Classicism and Modernity. When I was asked to come and talk in the seminar, um, which covers classicism uh, and uh, modernity, uh, both in the, same, in the same breath, as it were, potentially as the, the main contribution on architecture, of course, the topic was huge, and um, uh, I could have talked about a number of different things this evening. But what I thought would be most useful, uh, given that the seminar is focusing in part on the exhibition which happens to be on at the Yale Centre right at this time in this semester, is to talk a little bit about um, architecture in relation to the English prize, the capture of the Westmoreland, this ship that was sailing from Leghorn to <coughs> England in late 1778, early 1779, just at the outbreak of hostilities when it was captured by the French, taken to Spain, and the goods dispersed in Spain, which they only recently rediscovered, or at least which the, the, the origins of the collections were recently rediscovered. And the, the exhibit, exhibit, if you haven't seen it, uh, there's a lot of detail about the, the processes uh, by which this um, collection of artifacts spread uh, throughout Spain, mostly in the Royal Academy in Madrid, however, uh, have been reattributed to their original owners. So um, I think one of the great things about that exhibition uh, is the sort of snapshot uh, that it gives us of a particular moment in the history of the Grand Tour. And it's a salutary reminder, I think, that we have something that is a kind of a, a slice of a temporal moment like that, that we have to be rather cautious about some of the big historiographical terms that we use in the history of art. Um, the course that Professors Barringer and Gaithman are teaching uh, has the notion of neoclassicism at the heart of it. But scholars don't agree uh, about what neoclassicism is, when it started, or when it ended. Uh, and of course, in the 18th century, nobody knew they were living in the neoclassical age, or that the style of architecture or any other form of art that was being developed was a neoclassical style of architecture. So I want to talk really quite specifically about today three episodes that relate architecture to the tradition of classical antiquity uh, and to things that are changing in the 1770s when the grand tourists and the architectural students whom they met in Rome uh, were there. Uh, because of course people really exist in the present, not in some long historiographical uh, construct that we put upon them hundreds of years later. And the three episodes I'm going to talk to you about this evening uh, are... Uh, First will be about new approaches to the transference of antiquity from ancient ruined buildings to modern buildings in Britain in the second half of the 18th century. And secondly, uh, the professionalization of architecture that took place arguably in that quarter of a century between 1750 and 1775. And finally, uh, in the third part of the talk, I'm going to come back to again to antiquity and think about some of those very specific items that were on the ship and how they specifically became embodied in modern architectural design. So what I've tried to do is weave a lecture for you that incorporates quite a few of the objects you can see that have an architectural connotation in the show, uh, but into the narrative of these three different areas of inquiry. Before I move on, can I just check that the microphone is working okay for you at the back? Is that that's good? Okay. I was giving a lecture at Middlebury um, two years ago, and uh, in the dark, I suddenly felt somebody around my legs. Um, <laughs> and it was the microphone person trying to get the 
microphone in my pants to work. So, uh, didn't want you to have to do that during this lecture. So, so I'm glad to hear that's working okay for you. Um, I just thought I'd start with an image that is in the show, but uh, actually is not on the Westmoreland. This painting of um, a group of grand tourists uh, in Rome by Catherine Reed, female artist, around about 1751, here in the Yale Centre for British Art and in the show, as I say, uh, at the moment, um, where you see this group of dilettantish gentlemen, one of them probably in the uh, tricorn hat and the red uh, jacket, the red coat there, uh, being Lord Charlemont, one of the foremost authorities on antiquities in the middle of the 18th century. But here we are, seeing them sitting at leisure amidst the uh, ruins of the Arch of Constantine on the right and the uh, Colosseum, as you see, on the left there. And of course it goes with the title that I've taken for this evening, Carrying Off the Colosseum, British Architecture Encounters with Rome in the 1770s. But like all um, titles for talks, uh, these sometimes throw up difficulties you didn't anticipate. One of the difficulties this has given me is, having taken that title, I now can't find a quotation where somebody talks about carrying off the Colosseum. It's repeated by professors uh, as a truism. Uh, I haven't been able to locate an actual source for that. But of course, in itself, that is quite interesting, isn't it? Quite instructive that um, people simply repeat this idea as though it's acknowledged truism when uh, perhaps there is no actual source uh, for it. But carrying off the Colosseum seems to be precisely what is going on in some of these paintings that record Grand Tourists by, of course, the foremost portraitist of Rome in the latter part of the 18th century, Pompeo Attoni. On the right here, uh, you see William Waddell, uh, Grand Tourist who was in Rome in 1765. And I love the way that in this image, uh, his um, hand gesturing seems to almost cup uh, the enormous uh, girth and the size of the Colosseum, as though somehow this massive monument can be encapsulated into a miniature form and carried away. Of course, this wasn't possible, uh, but what was possible was to acquire uh, collections of sculpture whilst you were in Rome. Not the collections that you see, of course, in the background of this painting on the left, showing the tourist Thomas Dundas of 1764. These works, cardinal value in the Vatican, uh, could only be taken away uh, by military pressure by Napoleon uh, in the, at the end of the century, and of course, sent back to Rome after the Congress of Vienna of 1814. But statuary could, could, of course, represent a material object from antiquity that could be transported back to England. And William Weddell, who we see here on the right, uh, acquired one of the great collections of classical uh, statues that were available in Rome when he was there in 1765. He spent a vast amount of money. Uh, and the point I want to get to is that uh, he had in mind, and fulfilled this ambition, the construction of a new sculpture gallery on his house at Newby in Yorkshire, to contain the artifacts that he brought back. And this is the section of the building, top left here, and two views of it uh, below and on the right. The design here, 1767 to 674, as you see, the design here is the work of Robert Adam. And let's move to him and a flashy portrait of Adam with his silk stockings and silk waistcoat. Uh, because Adam did say in one of his letters home, with money, I'd transport to England the Pantheon and the columns of Trajan and Antony, that's uh, Antoninus Pius. Um, so this idea of physically transporting monuments, uh, even though not practically possible, um, is something that clearly was being talked about uh, in the ambitions of uh, those students of antiquity like Adam, who was in uh, Italy from 1755 to 1758. And I want to stay with Adam for a moment, because I think it's with him uh, that we meet one of the great transformations in the history of uh, classical architecture, and something that really does 
resonate with the idea of neoclassicism and new classicism. And we can see what that is, most effectively, I think, by looking at uh, this elevation of this house, Kedleston Hall in Derbyshire, uh, where Adam took over the designs of the building in 1759-1760 and was able to redesign the south front, which you see uh, in the central top image here. Um, now, I think I've got a laser pointer here. Yes, there we go. So you can see that um, quite apart from the conventional temple front of portico that country houses by this point in the century would traditionally have in England, Adam gives us something entirely novel. He gives us the Arch of Constantine, uh, reduced down into the, uh, into the portico or into the frontispiece of the south front of the house. But not content with doing that, of course, he gives us the dome of the Pantheon as well. <laughs> Uh, bringing that, sliding that across to put it on top of the Arch of Constantine. Now we go inside the space, the circular space behind the dome there, and what do we find? Well, circular space, the coffering, the shapes of the roof there, which in the Pantheon, those of you who visited Rome will know this, are square, or at least um, rectangular in form, uh, have been transformed by Adam into the octagonal uh, coffers of the Basilica of Maxentius in the Forum in Rome. And to complete the piece, the niches down below here uh, have got the lozenge-shaped or diamond-shaped coffers of the Temple of Venus in Rome, uh, quite close to the Basilica Maxentius in Rome, but not the same building. And as if just to give the final uh, indication that we're reworking antiquity into some new um, hole here, of course we've got uh, paintings by uh, William Richard Hamilton set into the wall uh, showing ruins just to drive home the point. And what we're looking at here is a kind of eclectic gathering of motifs of different building types, triumphal arches, basilicas, temples, um, and, and, a, and a, a synthesis of these elements into a new kind of design. Now, to come to the Westmoreland specifically, um, one of the most prolific groups of objects that were found on the ship were these, kind of, these topographical uh, uh, images, uh, gouache, images like the one lower left here that belong to Viscount Duncannon, a figure we'll meet quite a few times in my talk, top left there by Reynolds. And on the right, these much more luxurious uh, etched prints that were hand-coloured to make them look like watercolours. Here, the Arch of Titus on the left and um, the Temple of Castor and Pollux in the Forum on the right. Now, these kind of topographical views, which might seem to us like the picture postcards of the day, uh, record, of course, people's experience visiting these ruins. But they are topographical, uh, by and large, done with varying degrees of competence. I don't want to talk about that today. I want to talk about a different attitude to antiquity. And it's one that is best represented by a drawing that was made either by Adam himself or perhaps by his French drawing tutor, Charles-Louis Clérisseau, uh, in Rome in 1756. It's the image at the bottom here. I'm sorry about the quality of the reproduction. This has never been published in colour. Uh, and it's a fairly um, grey-washed drawing anyway. But as you can see... It is a view uh, from, in fact, the Colosseum, standing in the arches of the Colosseum, looking to the west, towards the lozenge-shaped apse of the Temple of Venus in Rome that we looked at a moment or two ago, and that you see in the photograph I took some years ago at the top there. But what I want to point out to you is that this is not an innocent piece of topographical recording. It's a very selective approach to the ruins. Uh, the most obvious way of showing that point is to draw your attention on the photograph to the tower of the Church of Santa Francesca Romana, a Romanesque medieval bell tower that was obviously there in the 1750s, but which Adam or Clary Serve simply imagined or wiped away 
from this image. So immediately, we're not looking at topography here, we're looking at a very instrumental approach to the monuments, in which they're being studied for their architectural tectonic qualities, not a simple topography. And if we move on through Adam's great uh, albums of drawings that he made whilst he was travelling in Italy, we could find this idea developing further. Here we're looking at an actual ruin that was studied selectively, as I've argued, but nonetheless an actual ruin. Here on the left, we're looking at Adam depicting an imaginary ruin. This is no actual place. Uh, he's now moving on from the study of actual ruins to the conceptualization of even perhaps grander, uh, more impressive ruins. And then, moving on further than that, um, he starts to make drawings which reconstruct the, the ruins he's imagined in the first place. So you see how the system is going, from the topographical study of ruins to the selective study of ruins, to the imagination of ruins, to the restoration of those ruins as actual uh, actual buildings that might conceivably be built when he gets back to, uh, to Britain. Now, where did he get these ideas of doing this from? They didn't come simply out of his own head. Uh, he got them, I think, from fundamentally from two different sources that were already existent in Rome in the middle of the 18th century. One was from the French tradition uh, based at the uh, Ecole de France at Rome, which was in the Via del Corso, the main street of Rome, uh, and where French students sent to study in Rome by the Academy in Paris uh, worked uh, throughout the 1740s and 1750s and worked in a particular way uh, in inculcating this, uh, this very tectonic interest in ruins. Adam was taught specifically by this man, uh, Charles-Louis Clairisseau, who I mentioned a moment or two ago, seen here in a cartoon, making sketches. And on the right, I'm showing you the painted ruin room that Clairisseau designed and had built, or decorated, at the convent of Santa Trinita al Monte, just at the top of the Spanish steps in Rome. Uh, now, this kind of study of antiquity, the creative use of ruin, uh, was absolutely uh, typical of the French students of the 1740s and early 1750s. And Adam employed Clairisseau, and so important did he think that his connection with Clairisseau was that when Adam himself left Italy to travel back to England, the intervening period until his brother James could arrive to study, uh, Adam actually paid a retainer to Clarissa to make sure he wouldn't work for anybody else. So you can just see how instrumental uh, Clarissa was in developing that vision. Adam wanted his brother to get the same training and nobody else to get it so that they could be competitive in the market when they got back to England, something I'll talk about uh, a little later on. The other great source for Adam's ideas, of course, uh, were the etched prints of Giambattista Piranesi, the great visionary artist who came from Venice and background in stage design. Uh, and when he came to the grander scene of Rome, um, started to produce the kind of images you see on the left here. This is from Piranesi's Prima Parte di Architettura of 1743. Uh, but you can see when I show you another of Adam's drawings on the left there, on the right, I'm sorry, another of these imaginary uh, buildings, uh, you can see just how uh, close I think he is, without my needing to go into too much detail, how close he is to that vision of Piranesi. And the two men certainly worked and studied together in 1755 and 1756. We'll come back to their relationship a little bit later on. Now what I want to stress uh, in heading towards the Westmoreland in the 1770s is that Adam, through this means of study that I've just talked about, um, was able to disseminate and to inculcate in England a wholly new way uh, of looking at the use of antiquity for architectural design. And one can illustrate that quite simply, I think, um, by going back a little bit earlier in the 18th century to see 
what the situation in England was to a period of time that some historians would call the, the Neo-Palladian period in English architecture. And you can see why they called it that. If you compare Palladio's great Pilar Rotonda on the left there, the 1550s to 60s, with Merriworth Castle in Kent, built by the architect Colin Campbell in the 1720s in England. And uh, obviously there are differences between these two buildings, but their uh, generic relationship is clear enough. Uh, and you can see that Campbell was, uh, in a sense, a devoted Palladian in, in, this, in, in this context. But one of the great features about English Palladianism uh, was that it was an architecture that was largely based on paper observation, not on the observation in three dimensions of the ruins themselves. It's an architecture that was based in, in, in great detail on the collections of drawings of Palladio that Lord Burlington, in the first half of the century, acquired and uh, made the centre of his effective academy for uh, young architectural students. Um, give you an example of this and of the approach that it led to, um, Burlington owned Palladio's drawings of the Roman bath complexes, the thermi. Uh, these are the so-called bars of Agrippa in which Palladio imagines the Pantheon was uh, a central element. Uh, we now know it wasn't, but that's how Palladio has it. And these drawings which Burlington owned, he published in the 1730s in a, a luxurious volume with an Italian introduction, uh, using a sepia ink to try to imitate the colours, even of the original drawings. And Burlington put these drawings forward as a model for English design in the 1730s. And this is a kind of neoclassicism, isn't it? Going back to antiquity, uh, just to come back to my point that, that the boundaries of this genre are, are malleable. But let's have a look at how the, uh, the paper-based approach to architecture actually worked in practice. We can do that best by looking at Lord Burlington's design for the assembly rooms in Bath, in South, uh, sorry, in York, in uh, North Northeast England. Um, here we have the frontal elevation of the building at the top right here, and these thermal windows. The word thermal coming from thermi, meaning Roman baths. So from his drawings, uh, prefigure an entrance into a space beyond, uh, bottom right here, uh, with a rectangular form and a colonnade going along. Now, the elevation here with the columns across the end and the pilasters you may just be able to make out in the upper story. The elevation, Burlington has taken from this plate uh, in Andrea Palladio's Four Books of Architecture of 1570. Um, but, he's copied the details very closely, but for the length of the arcade, or the colonnade I should say, uh, which isn't given by Palladio, he's taken Palladio's ideal drawing of a basilica. So the number of columns here corresponds to the number of columns here. And indeed this uh, porch pushing out at the front here in Burlington's design, of course, is taken from the apse in this uh, drawing plate of the print of the, of, the, of the basilica, bottom left. Now, this building, therefore, represents a kind of perfect essay in a kind of bookish architecture, both in plan and in elevation. Of course, it didn't work as a building. Uh, the intercolumniation, the distance between the two columns, uh, was too narrow for the ladies' dresses that were in fashion at the time. And there's a famous comment by the Duchess of Marlborough about uh, the columns being like a nine-pin, um, nine-pin, what's it called, a bowling alley, uh, nine-pin nine uh, distance, uh, not wide enough for ladies' hooped dresses to pass through. And the ladies were found it inelegant to have to be popped through by their male partners <laughs> between the columns. Um, so here we have a piece of architecture which is a pure essay in kind of neoclassicism of a sort this kind of two-dimensional paper-based nature, stick exactly to what Palladio says the ancients did, uh, and yet one that practically 
didn't answer to its functions terribly well. And fairly shortly <coughs> after this, the columns were actually closed in to make a single space, and uh, uh, they've now been opened up again, but uh, the problem had to be dealt with by uh, a later architect. So these interiors of the first half of the 18th century in England are kind of neoclassicism, yes, but one based not so much on first-hand observation of ruins and monuments, but based on the bookish, uh, uh, bookish nature of, uh, of, of the people of the period. And here are the kind of interiors uh, that we get as a result of that. For entrance halls and sculpture galleries, relatively calm white spaces or um, off-white spaces. This is Holcomb Hall in Norfolk, uh, where um, the um, Earl of Leicester has installed his great collection of antique sculpture, as you see some of the examples here. And then penetrating further into the uh, saloon in a house, this is, this is actually Houghton on the right in Norfolk, also by William Kent, same architect. Uh, the, the red damask walls, the fairly heavy uh, temple-style door cases, and the sort of grotesque decoration of the ceiling, kind of neoclassicism in a sense, but also moulded with Baroque um, effusion, uh, as you can see there. And I can make the comparison, perhaps, best for you between uh, the first half of the century and the second half, if I keep Holcomb there on the left and move to put Newby, uh, the house that William Weddell designed, or the extension he designed to house his sculpture collection, on the right, where you can see Adam's much more interested in uh, surface decoration, in varying different spaces, and the way that light can be controlled in a sequence of spaces from dome to barrel vault to apse. Uh, much more complex um, uh, kind of architecture based on his study of those ruins in Rome. Adam, of course, uh, as I've already indicated, was an architect very ambitious to set up uh, a kind of monopoly, really, of tasteful architecture in England. One of the things he did uh, was to uh, get back in contact with his friend Piranesi in Rome and get Piranesi to make some uh, prints for uh, a book that Adam proposed to publish, The Works in Architecture, first volume came out in 1773, in which he sought to uh, promote his own uh, style as a kind of revolution in design. Um, and this is what he says there. We flatter ourselves. We have been able to seize with some degree of success the beautiful spirit of antiquity and to transfuse it with novelty and variety, kind, creating a kind of revolution in the whole system of English architecture. Well, that's personal and professional hype, of course. But really, it's true. Um, uh, and uh, if you think about Adam's great interiors of the second, uh, third quarter of the 18th century, um, the great entrance hall at Zion here on the left, again, the, the colour tone is light, but the plasticity of the design is so much greater uh, than what we saw at, at Holcomb. Uh, and then, of course, in the interior space, there's no longer the dark red damask with the paintings hanging on the walls, but these pale uh, colours, pale pinks, pale greens that suit the northern climate better than the hot southern climate. Uh, decoration in panels on the walls, uh, plasterwork on the ceilings, inset paintings, inset paintings on the walls, the carpet designed to match the ceiling, the furniture designed by Adam to complete the ensemble, the Gesamtkunstwerk, the complete work of, of art. And this style, this uh, idiom that Adam created, was phenomenally successful in the, uh, in the third quarter of the century uh, and emulated widely. We see it taken up by uh, James Wyatt, a younger architecture architect, here, for example, in the uh, saloon at Heaton Hall, uh, just outside Manchester in Lancashire, where the decorations on the uh, panels, as the students who've studied this will 
No come from William Hamilton's publication of the vase collections and the ceiling decorations here also come from a publication of the Antiquities of Herculaneum that have been recently rediscovered, things you're going to see uh, next week. Um, but Wyatt picking up on the Adam style and in some ways even trumping him, even taking over upon him. And then to go to a, a less well-known uh, provincial um, emulator, Thomas Baldwin in Bath in the in the assembly rooms here. Uh, not the assembly room, sorry, it's the, uh, it's the, uh, uh, the guild hall. Um, and you can, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. You can see here um, uh, something of Adam's style being picked up, as I say, even by a provincial architect uh, working in a provincial context. And this is the 1770s, 1772, 1778, 1775 to 6 on the right. So these are the kind of interiors that our tourists on the West Northern ship would have been familiar with uh, in the decade of their youth leading up to their going on the Grand Tour. These are the kind of interiors that the architects of the period would have been seeing as the most fashionable, uh, up-to-date uh, form of design. So let me come back then to the ship and to those tourists uh, who were there at the time that their collections were, were made and show you one image uh, which uh, is a drawing that belonged to uh, Viscount Duncannon. It's not in the show. Um, I took this photograph in Madrid when I went to look at the drawings prior to writing catalogue entries on them. We decided not to show this in the, in the exhibition in the end. But it goes to the heart of the kind of thing I've been talking about because this shows the so-called Temple of Fortuna Virilis. We now know it's the Temple of Fortunus near the Tiber in Rome. And, you know, it looks like a, a ruin. It's got foliage dripping off the top of it and so forth and cracks in the stone. But if I show you that image side by side with Piranesi's view of the same structure uh, <clears throat> at the same time, you can see that, in fact, uh, in the 18th century, this building was a church, had been converted into a church with the walls uh, all, all, all filled in here, belfry on top, and indeed the whole building was tucked into domestic properties that had been built against it. It wasn't cleared until the 20th century. So already we're seeing an interest amongst those grand tourists there in uh, a view of antiquity which isolates the antique monument from its actual context to study it as a thing in its own right and semi-restores it as well. It's the idea of Robert Adam and Clarisso, isn't it? This kind of selective view of just what you want to see, uh, not what actually is there topographically. And that, of course, relates to uh, a number of other drawings that were on the ship and belonged to uh, Lord Duncannon, including this great pair of so-called temple designs. And when I first saw these in Madrid, I thought they were fictitious. I uh, didn't recognize them as anything that I knew existed. Um, but in fact, it turned out on closer uh, inspection and on closer research uh, that they were not entirely fictitious. Uh, they were variants of two little buildings that had been known for quite a long time, actually, and studied in the Renaissance. Um, and indeed reproduced, this one reproduced by Sebastiano Serlio in his book of 1550, the plan, but not the elevation. And then um, in, a, in the 17th century, the architect Giovanni Battista Montano had made these little restorations of the buildings in his uh, treaties. And you see on the right, the one on which whoever uh, did this has based their design. And there, the second one, uh, this one, the, the tomb of the uh, Attiliae Catiliani, um, but uh, again, embellished and uh, enriched by the artists who made these drawings that Lord Duncannon wanted to buy and bring home. And one of the things that strikes one about the graphic style of these drawings, I think, is how close they are to the way that architecture is being represented, not just in Italy, but back in England, at the very same point in time, indeed a little earlier, 
I'm showing you here a comparison of one of the drawings in the Westland on the left with a design by William Chambers for a casino to be built in the gardens of Wilton House. Uh, and the rain-streaked stonework, uh, the foliage to either side here, the trees, the shrubbery, the palette, uh, all seem pretty, pretty similar. And this is the way that Chambers was encouraging students to um, study architecture and to represent it, catch the eye in particular uh, against the, uh, against the um, more obvious attractions of painting uh, for the eye, to make architecture more picturesque in the sense. And this is where he was encouraging his students, several of whom were actually in Italy at the time in the Westmoreland, to represent architecture. And it brings me to my second fundamental point I want to make in the talk, which is the, uh, the fact that Chambers was the one of the great founder members and the treasurer of the Royal Academy in London, which was established, as some of you will know, in 1768. Uh, so in the intervening period between Adam doing what he did and our tourists and architects going on the grand tour, the academy had been found. That's a pretty fundamental change to actually have an institution uh, that both taught and offered uh, competitions for students to potentially gain uh, funding for travel. Hello, come on in. And I can just represent that by um, this image showing the uh, annual exhibition of the Royal Academy in 1787, a little later than our Westmoreland expedition. And we're not seeing architectural drawings here, we're seeing the great room with paintings, of course. But it's just a reminder that this fundamental shift in architectural training has taken place. Frankly, architecture has become now more professionalised. Uh, pupillage is possible, but there's an academy to which you can go. So the persona of the architect really now rather separates himself off from the persona of the grand tourist. This is rather a big theme for me, actually. I don't personally think that architects made grand tours. I think they went on professional journeys. Um, and we can perhaps represent that by this cartoonish representation of the antique architect with his portfolios under his arm and his measuring rods and things and bits of cornice and dividers down there behind. And um, uh, just to make the point as well about the community of artists and architects who visited Rome and were there in the period that the, the exhibition represents, we can actually refer to the journey of Thomas Hardwick, um, one of Chambers's pupils, who, when he reached Rome in 1776, went straight to the English coffee house near the Piazza di Spagna, uh, where the walls were decorated by Egyptian-style uh, fantasies by Piranesi, had been done in the 1760s. This is not the Café degli Inglesi, but it shows us a coffee house in Rome at the same time, gives us an idea of the kind of society that was there. And when Hardwick arrived, in November of 1776, a wet, cold, gloomy day, he says, very appropriate for us uh, here today, um, he meets 18 fellow artists whom he already knew from London, or many of whom he already knew from London. So you, you have a virtual academy there in the coffee house uh, in Rome for somebody arriving after months or weeks of travel. Uh, there's actually a society, a community of people there. Fellow artists you can join up with to measure buildings, to go on little trips for safety and for comparing notes. Um, artists who can make connections for you with uh, the patrons who were in Rome at the time. And one other thing that Rome offered that, to begin with, London didn't, uh, was the chance for young architects to compete in, in uh, the concorsi, or the actual competitions of the Academy of St. Luke in Rome, where you could try your hand against the artists of other nations and see if you'd come away with a prize. The first British architect to succeed in that regard was an uncle Robert Milne, who was a contemporary of Adams in Rome in the 1750s. 1758, uh, he won the first prize in the first class of the Academia di San Luca for this 
design here on the left, showing a building to house academies. I'm sorry, the image is not very good. The drawing is not in very good condition in Rome any longer. But part of the enterprise was not just to make these drawings over the period of a year or so before the competition, but to turn up on the day for an extemporary examination where a subject was drawn out of an urn at random uh, and you were simply told, right, two hours, make a drawing. And Milne um, drew the subject of a, an ornamental altar. You see the prova, the proof drawing of Roberto Milne, Scotsese, the Scottish architect. And he writes home to his parents, I'm sure your heart is with me now as you think of that terrible subject I was given. But I made it out, he says, and a fine one too. And indeed he was right, because they judged him to be the victor in the competition. And uh, he writes back to his parents, uh, think of my heart when I heard the news uh, of my success. Thump, thump, thump. I feel it still. <laughs> and this was a big deal. Uh, you ended up going to the Capitoline Hill, to the Senator's Palace, a huge event with oratorical poems read in your honour, music performed in your honour and so forth. The cardinals were there. Uh, the old pretender called Il Re d'Inquintero, the King of England, was on the dais. Uh, and you were honoured and fated, and your reputation was effectively made by that. And our architects in the 1770s are busy trying to win these competitions as well. Uh, this is a design for a, a systematisation of the Piazza del Popolo in Rome by the architect Thomas Harrison. came from Yorkshire, ended up in Chester. Uh, he didn't win. Uh, the reason he didn't win is almost certainly due to uh, nefarious trading, horse trading amongst the professors. Harrison complained to the Pope, Clement XIV, who he'd already got familiar with through uh, designs he'd made for the Cortes of Belvedere. And the Pope rather agreed with Harrison and said that the Academy had to elect him as a member. So he was uh, uh, forcibly elected as a member uh, at the behest of the Pope. Uh, and you can see how these competitions and the publicity they brought for these young professionals could be so instrumental in a career beyond. And there's no better case of somebody with an eye for professional success than John Stone, an architect who was in Rome at the time the Westland collections were being made, but who doesn't actually feature in, in the show. We, we, can't, we couldn't match him on to anything that was, was done, that was on the ship. But here he is as the ambitious young student in his 20s, uh, and here's what he says later on uh, in his memoirs of 1835, towards the end of his life. Uh, he writes, I was sent to Italy to pursue my studies. This was the most fortunate event of my life, for it was the means by which I formed those connections to which I owe all the advantages I have since enjoyed. And I do hope it will prove to be the case of the students in the Frankie seminar, <laughs> that they will also have a similar experience when they're in Naples. But let's just see what Soane does uh, when he uh, is there. He gets involved with patrons, with clients, and these are not any longer grand tourists who've taken him along as their emanuensis, as would happen in the first half of the century. He's gone independently. Uh, with £60 a year from the Royal Academy to make his studies. But he wants to get in with these grandees uh, to see if he can acquire work from them. And, uh, one of the people he gets in with is the notoriously capricious Bishop of Derry, the Earl of Bristol, uh, Frederick Harvey. Um, and uh, he travels with um, Harvey in a wonderful expedition around Latium, the area just south uh, east, southwest of Rome. Uh, and in 1780, uh, Harvey uh, lured his from Italy back to his home in Ireland uh, to make designs for uh, his house at Downhill. Sorry about the watermark in the image I've stolen from the Soane Museum's website there, but this is the dining room that Soane designed for Downhill. He spent a very uh, fruitless two months in Ireland in 17, 
80, and giving up on his patron as a, a no-gooder who was never going to actually commission him to do the work. Let's see what he does. He crosses back over the Irish Sea, and he goes to uh, Allen Bank near the Scottish border at Berwick-on-Tweed, where he proposes wings for the house for his friend John Stewart, who we'd met on expedition to Sicily and travelled with in April, July 1779. Well, that doesn't work out either, so he travels south to County Durham, uh, where he makes a design for stables, that you see on the right-hand side here, for Roland Burden, another of his friends from the Sicily trip. Well, that doesn't work out either, so he comes south and starts his career in London. And fairly shortly afterwards, he's commissioned by Henry Greswold Lewis, another of the expedition to Sicily members, to design a portico and wings for his house, Malvern Hall, uh, uh, that uh, you see here on the screen. And for the portico, this uh, ellipse of columns pushing forwards, the frieze that you see here with the bull's skull and the swag between them has clearly been taken, although it's an ionic order, from the little circular temple at Tivoli, just outside Rome, sometimes called the Temple, temple of Vesta, uh, because of its circular shape. And here is a great drawing of that Corinthian order and the bull's heads and swags made by George Dance the Younger, who was Soane's uh, master, his academic master, a drawing that Soane uh, hugely admired that he later came to acquire. And indeed, one of the great uh, finds of this exhibition that's now at the Yale Centre uh, was a discovery of this drawing of the temple of Vesta at Tivoli. Uh, it's a copy, almost certainly made by or made for James Byers for uh, sale purposes. It's a copy of George Dance's original drawing. But because the original drawing was hung on the wall uh, of his house for so long by Soane, it's deteriorated bottom here to almost illegible uh, quality. So to find these fresh... Uh, versions of it, there are two, the two on the West Point, but this is the larger one, to find this on the ship, to see what the original coloration had been like, or more likely had been like, was quite a discovery for those of us who care about these, these things. Perhaps one of Soane's greatest interior designs in the house, Wimpole Hall in Cambridgeshire, uh, was made for another of his travelling companions uh, in Italy, Philip York, uh, uh, who, with whom he travelled to, to Paestum, uh, south of Rome, where I think the students will be going on their trip next week. And York himself wrote uh, in uh, early 1779 of an English architect by the name of Soane, who is an ingenious young man, accompanied us thither to Pystum and measured the buildings. And indeed Soane did, and we have his sketchbooks in the Soane Museum in London showing the measurements that he made of the Greek temples. And I show this to you just to flag up really how Greece as a phenomenon suddenly re-enters the uh, architect's ambit in the, uh, in the second half of the 18th century. Soane here showing some obsession with making detailed measurements of the temples and getting the, the details straight was certainly part of the process. And so I'm going to go back. And indeed, he later on, for Henry Griswold Lewis, the friend from Italy uh, in 1798, designed this barn a la Pystum for his uh, country <laughs> house. Doesn't look much like anything at Pystum, but the idea of the primitive, uh, going back to the, uh, the, the notions of Greek architecture as simple and you know, derived from fundamental ideas of structure, is clearly there in this barn a la Um But there's another side, of course, the Greek architecture uh, that was terribly important for these architects and indeed for travelling gentry at the time, uh, if they made the effort to get to Pystum, which was quite remote. Remember, at this time, it was quite difficult to travel to Greece itself. Uh, Sicily as well. So um, for many people, their acquaintance with Greek monuments could only come through uh, a rather arduous journey to 
Python. But I want to give you this um, image uh, of uh, the Temple of Hera II, the second Temple of Hera at Python, and the, the cover of the Penguin edition of Goethe's uh, Italian Journey, which I see is in the bookshop at Yale, and you've also been looking at, I think, in your, your seminar, the Tischbein painting of Goethe in the Campania. Uh, because Goethe gives us the other view of Greek architecture, not the scientific, carefully measured, rationally understood, but the other side of it, which is the emotional, emotive force that these men found in Greek architecture. Here's what Goethe writes about him. I wonder whether the students, when they go to Christen, will have the same experience. I found a countryman to conduct me around the temples. At first sight, they excited nothing but stupefaction. I found myself in a world which was completely strange to me. Our eyes, and through them our whole sensibility, have become so conditioned to a more slender style of architecture that these crowded masses of stumpy, conical columns appear offensive and even terrifying. But I pulled myself together, wonderful German uh, way of doing things, remembered the history of art, thought of the age in which this architecture was in harmony, called up images in my mind of the austere style of sculpture, and in less than an hour I found myself reconciled to them. It is only by walking through them and round them that one can attune one's life to theirs and experience the emotional effect which the architect intended. And to me, we're back with Robert Adam again, with the emotional impact and the, the, the tactile idea of seeing buildings in three dimensions and moving around them rather than the paper architecture of the first half of the century. And needless to say, Python features quite largely in some of the things that were on the Westmoreland. Uh, this is Francis Bassett's bottom right uh, image, uh, one of the images from his collection of views of Python by Felipe Morgan, uh, and two images by, um, by um, Piranesi there. On the, on the left, uh, showing the kind of sublimity and the power, the emotional effect of Greek architecture. But, of course, for architects on the tour, as we've just seen in the case of Solon, there was a much more pragmatic aspect to what they were about. They wanted work, uh, and if possible, they wanted the work right there and then in Italy. And one set of drawings that we have from the ship, designs for a chapel, I'm showing you here the plan and the elevation of the pulpit there, Actually, very beautiful drawings. I'm sorry about the rather jaunty angles of these photographs. They're not from the catalogue. They're shots I took when I was studying them. Perhaps I'd had too good a lunch in Spain. I don't know. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, they're a bit, a bit jaunty. But I'll give you, give you the impression. So on the boat, we have a set of drawings, designs for a chapel. Now, surely this was not a hypothetical design. This was designs made for Francis Bassett, uh, who came from Tahiti in Cornwall, the house that you see in this print. And I would think almost certainly he was thinking of having one of these corner pavilions, the ground floor, converted uh, into or refurbished as a chapel uh, by an architect. We don't really know who it was um, uh, in Italy at the time, but the measurements uh, and the scale bar are English, so possibly an English architect. It would be nice if it could be sewn, but we don't know that uh, for sure, I'm afraid. We attribute them in the catalogue to an architect called Ebden, but I'm now doubtful about that attribution. So here's Tahiti and the chapel uh, designs. But they have one feature that struck me, and I haven't talked about this much in the catalogue, but I want to raise it with you tonight, and that is the altar wall of this chapel. It has a large window, uh, which, as you can see, has at the centre of it uh, a dove representing the Holy Spirit and a starburst effect with clouds gathering around. Now, to me, that speaks of one thing, uh, and that is the great east window, well, it's on the west side of the building, of course, of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, over the Cathedra Petri, the throne of St. Peter, uh, by Bernini, with the crowded masses of cherubim and seraphim around, and the dove in the starburst at the centre there. Now, this would be 
extraordinarily Catholic gesture for Francis Bassett to be making in uh, 1778 when he has his uh, uh, drawing or rather his portrait by Batoni made. And here he is uh, in the portrait you can see in the Yale Centre of British Art now. And of course there is one rather remarkable feature about that painting as well, which is the presence of St. Peter's just above Bassett's left shoulder here in the background, juxtaposed with the Castel Sant'Angelo here. Now, the Bassett portrait is dated 1778, uh, and Bertone has clearly simply deployed a pose he previously used in this painting on the right, John Talbot, in 1773. Everything about the stick and the position of the feet, the elbow, of course the hat's come out here now, uh, and this pedestal's been given the um, Palazzo Altemps uh, Electra and Orestes. But the urn here, and incidentally we've got the Ludovisi Mars here, which I'll come back to in just a moment, but the urn here has now, rather innocuous urn, has now been replaced by the rather more potent symbol of St. Peter's. In all of Batoni's oeuvre, I think that St. Peter's only appears in one other painting, as far as I can tell, and that's this one here of uh, uh, Joseph II, Holy Roman Emperor uh, of Austria, and his brother Leopoldo here, who would succeed him at the end of the century. Uh, stalwart Catholics, uh, both though also very anti-Vatican, and clamped down on the religious orders in the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, during their reign. But you can see the juxtaposition of the two buildings, Castos and Angelo, and St. Peter's is the same. Well, you know, the jury's out. Does this suggest that Bassett was a Catholic? Or, if we think about the moment, 1778, does it suggest that, that we, as historians, are rather too hasty to put labels on Catholic, non-Catholic. Let's remember that after 1766 and the death of James III, so-called the Old Pretender, who, as I said to you before, was called Il Re d'Inghilterra, the King of England, in the Concorso competition uh, ceremonies of 1758. He died in 1766, and the Pope declined <coughs> to give the title of King of England to the young Pretender, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Uh, he called him the Duke of Albany. Wouldn't call him the King of England. So it may well be that this is a more innocent gesture that Bassett simply said, oh, give me some Peters in the background. Uh, it's okay now, I, nobody will think I'm a Catholic because the whole thing of the pretender has, has, has diminished. We're never going to know the, the outcome to that. I don't think there's any evidence that Bassett practiced Catholicism when he was back in England, but he was certainly pious. And although he lost his designs to the chapel and the ship, and they stayed in Spain for 250 years without being looked at until we got them uh, out fairly recently, he did nonetheless build a chapel in one of those pavilion wings at least by 1810, when he got back uh, to Tahiti. So he was certainly pious in that kind of way. Now, finally, uh, not to tax your patience uh, briefly, uh, let me come to the third uh, part of my talk, which was the transference of certain uh, motifs or key ideas drawn from archaeological context into English interior design in the uh, period around the time the Westmoreland treasures were discovered. And I'll start you off on that just by showing you uh, an image that I think the students will be familiar with on the left here. I'm sorry about the colour there. That's completely lurid, hasn't it? But this is William Hamilton uh, with his one of the volumes of uh, the uh, Antiquité Etrusque Grecque et Romaine, the great volume publication of his first collection of vases, but being admitted to the Society of Dilettanti, uh, a society founded in the 1730s, primarily about drinking and, uh, and uh, well, wine, women and song, really, uh, to start with. But by the period that we're interested in, much more focused on the serious study of antiquity, although not losing interest, as you can see, in the presence of the wine glasses uh, in the other side of their hedonistic pleasures. And I'll give you also uh, Lord Charlemont, one of the key dilettantes of the, of the period, as I've 
said, uh, again, showing you the ubiquity, the presence, really, of the Colosseum in the back of these images, just as St. Peter's is rare, the Colosseum is uh, common, carrying off the Colosseum. But let me give you just a few images here to, to show you how quickly uh, new ideas get transformed into new buildings, or, or new motifs get transformed into new buildings. Here in the show, in the, in the Yale Centre, you can see this rather remarkable painting on navy blue black silk of um, a centaur being goaded by a, a minad. Uh, there with his hands tied behind his back. It's an image, uh, a wall painting that was discovered in the so-called Villa of Cicero in Pompeii, 1749, uh, published, well-known, uh, and collected, in this case, by Francis Bassett. Uh, and you can see here how uh, very quickly in the 1770s this image makes its way, in fact, into, in this case, the ceiling roundels of uh, a drawing room, uh, sorry, uh, uh, upstairs of uh, the drawing room at uh, Newby Hall. Uh, this is not Robert Adam now, this is William Bellwood, we think, in the early 1770s. The painting, I'm not sure who by, possibly Angelica Kaufman. Um, but you can just see how these ideas, or these motifs, uh, newly discovered, uh, reproduced, and quickly incorporated into decorative schemes, how quickly these ideas reached uh, built form, as it were, back in England. But the, the, the site I particularly want to draw to your attention uh, uh, is not, in fact, Pompeii, or Herculaneum, but Rome itself. Um, let's remember that although the new emphasis on Pompeii and Herculaneum uh, was tremendously important, things were still going on in Rome that were very significant too. Perhaps the most significant of these was the excavation and study of the so-called Baths of Titus uh, in the late 1760s and early 1770s uh, by, uh, first of all, by a British architect, Charles Cameron in 1768, and secondly, by uh, a, a, an architect called um, Ludovico Miri, publisher architect, uh, in the 1770s. And Miri published with Giuseppe Carletti enormous folio volumes of the so-called Bars of Titus Roman wall paintings, uh, several volumes of which, and copies of which, were on the Westmoreland. Here are the Bars of Titus, so-called. Uh, it's actually the Bars of Trajan. Uh, and uh, the building below uh, here, which I can perhaps show you, this is a Piranesi view of the ruin, in the 1750s, the building below, so here's the so-called bars of Titus, which were actually the bars of Trajan, the bars of Titus were there. Um, underneath here uh, were the remains of the golden house of the emperor Nero, the famous Domus Aurea. And here is Cameron's study of, uh, planned study of the rooms that could be seen subterraneously here and here and over here. And over here in particular, Cameron gained access to a room here uh, probably for the first time, I think, since antiquity. These rooms were filled with earth uh, uh, when the bars were built above them and only excavated, partly known in the Renaissance, but only excavated in this 1770s period. And Cameron had access for the first time to this room, we now regard as one of the most important rooms in the Domus Aureus, room 119. <laughs> if you want to know the, the details, with quite spectacular wall paintings and a ceiling uh, painting, which you can't see here, uh, showing Achilles on Skyros. Of course, seeing these rooms was one thing. Making a record of them was another. And the process of making coloured drawings of these ruins uh, was a, a very uh, compelling one in the 1770s. Uh, the copies of the Miri Carletti book I've mentioned to you are all black and white. But there were deluxe editions prepared uh, with colour on them. These are the actual watercolours rather than uh, the coloured books. But this is the architect Vincenzo Brenner studying the wall paintings in one of the corridors in the Golden House of Nero with this 
bright red ground. Here a ceiling with a whitish ground and the colours you can see uh, top left. And here a lunette at the end of one of the uh, barrel vaulted spaces with a kind of purple brown maroon kind of ground. And these images being widely disseminated in the 1770s lie behind, I'm sure, the production of drawings like this, also by Brenner, which was purchased by Viscount Duncannon and was on the ship and is in the show there now. Here, I think, a ceiling design uh, for a corridor, sort of rectangular shape, uh, and this one a ceiling design for a squarer shaped room. Now, when these drawings were first found, uh, they were thought to actually represent the actual ceilings uh, in the Golden House of Nero or perhaps some other site in Rome. My view is that they are fictitious drawings uh, based on those actual archaeological ones, but brought to a certain degree of modern taste. Uh, one way we can see that is the uh, pale green ground here. This is the taste of the 18th century, not uh, something you find in Roman wall paintings. Uh, you've already seen Robert Adams' pale pinks, pale greens. This is the aesthetic of the neoclassical, not of the classical period. Uh, and then uh, looking at these uh, images with uh, Jose Maria uh, Luthon, the, one of the great progenitors of this show, we began to realize that some of the figures on the drawing are actual versions of other images that existed elsewhere in Rome. I'm going to take you up to the right top corner here and turn this upside down there for you. Uh, so you can see uh, this figure, a Mars or Ares figure, seems to us to have been derived from the famous resting Ares in the Palazzo Ludovici, Ludovici in the Palazzo Altense now in Rome. It's not identical, I, I know that, but this hooking of the left leg with the arms uh, the transference of the shield from the side here to the side over here, the slightly contraposto looking over the shoulder uh, look. Uh, it seems to us that uh, you know, Brenner here is, is raiding his store of images from around Rome to create this fictive uh, and eye-catching image that was sold to Lord Duncannon. One of the most remarkable episodes here, I think, is the transference of the famous black ground uh, painted walls of the Domus Aurea. This is room 32, uh, as painted by Brenner in the mid-1770s. The transference of that into built form back in England uh, in the 1780s. And here on the right, <coughs> we're looking at the so-called gallery from Packington Hall in Warwickshire, uh, which was designed by the architect Joseph Bonomi, an Italian who had been brought to England to work by Robert Adam, uh, who went independent, travelled with the Earl of Aylesford to uh, Pyston and Pompeii and Rome, obviously, and... Uh, one of the rare occasions where we get this black ground painting clearly based on the Brenner drawings of the uh, Golden House of Nero. But as I draw to a close, I'll just show you an image that we weren't able to include in the show, uh, but that I really love. This one on the left, um, again owned by Viscount Duncannon, showing the floor of the Pantheon. A beautiful pattern of those purple uh, circles and bluish marble discs that comprise that floor. Uh, and again, this, this drawing, this type of drawing, was mass-produced for sale to the market in Rome of Grand Tourists. There's another version of it, which actually belonged to the late Sir Howard Colvin, uh, on, on the right there. Uh, and what I like about this is the, is the, the, the sense it brings of, 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 of modern people in the 1770s actually walking on the same floor that the ancients walked on. So rather than seeing ruined buildings that speak of the passage of time and destruction, to walk on the same floor is to be, in a sense, almost more viscerally closer to those, those people. Uh, we have a quote here from John Chetwood Eustace, 1802, a little later I acknowledge, but 
he talks about the pavement laid by Agrippa and trodden by Augustus still forms its floor. So you're there with Agrippa, you're there with Augustus. Except, of course, you weren't, uh, because the pantheon was built by Hadrian, uh, and, and, uh, and not, uh, not the version of Agrippa's Agrippa. Nor, neither Agrippa nor Augustus ever set eyes on this building. But let's not let the illusion spoil uh, a nice uh, idea. The idea is still good, isn't it? The floor trodden by Hadrian and trodden by Trajan. Um, or maybe not by Trajan, by Hadrian, by Marcus Aurelius. Uh, is the same floor we still walk today. It brings me back to where I started, really, with those grand tourists possessing antiquity, bouncing it in their hands, owning it visually, if they couldn't own it physically. Uh, and uh, one drawing we do have in this show from the same set of the Pantheon is this wonderful section through the Pantheon, uh, where Brenner, if it is indeed he who drew it, has actually uh, restored the second story here, the middle story, to its uh, original Roman form rather than the neoclassical form it has today. It's not that I want to finish with, though. It's these little groups of figures that you see down here in the entrance porch and here and here. And I've got some details for, for you. Uh, because to me, these represent the other side of the image of the Grand Tourist from the Batoni swaggering, silken stockinged, spelt figure. These are the portly, the emaciated, elongated, the real English tourists of Rome uh, of the time. We see them here in the entrance porch, a liveried coachman, perhaps two children perhaps begging at the door as they ignore them completely, pointing to the grandeurs of the building. Here, what do we see? Uh, you know, uh, etiolated Englishman, fat Englishman, a child perhaps with his drawing pad. He's been told to make some drawings. I take you, you will learn this. We can all imagine the conversation. And in the centre of the building, uh, two chaps discussing, well, who knows what, perhaps uh, the grandeur of antiquity, or maybe just what they're going to have for dinner that evening. Ubiquitous English dog, of course. Uh, there, uh, as much in this image uh, as in the swaggering Batoni on the right. So I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for coming here. The Frankie seminars and lectures at Yale University were generously endowed by Richard and Barbara Frankie and are intended to introduce important topics in the humanities to a general audience. The preceding lecture by Frank Salmon was the first of two lectures delivered in the fall of 2012 in conjunction with the seminar Classicism and Modernity. The lecture took place in Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on November 8, 2012.